Welcome to the Via Tourism Podcast, and I'm Kojo Benton Williams. The Via Tourism Podcast is dedicated to Africa's travel and tourism industry, where leaders in the private and public sectors get to talk to us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. My podcast today is coming to you from the iconic Okavango Delta in Botswana, where Duke's manager of Jarana Okavango Delta Camp, part of the NBN group, walks me through the uniqueness and what it means for one to visit this site. Good evening, good afternoon, and I'm coming to you from the Zarana Okavango Delta Camp in the Okavango um, region of Botswana, where I've been touring the place and I've had the privilege with other colleague journalists of experiencing this iconic place. And to help me uh, understand or get a sense of exactly what it what it means to be here and why people are visiting here. And it's a unique trait as Dukes. Dukes, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How Can are you? Introduce yourself. Your full name. Oh, great. My name is Khali uh, Bootsi, Dukes Mareja. So I'm affectionately known as Dukes. For for many years, I've been using this name, which I acquired from school through a sport uh, that I was playing there, known as karate. And uh, some of my colleagues just thought the name is it's best for <laughs> best for what I was at the time. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Can you now uh, on that introduce us to uh, Okavango Delta? The Okavango Delta is, of course, a beautiful place to start with. It is uh, situated in the northern part of Botswana. Uh, it's, it's actually rainwater coming from the highlands of Angola and then flows through a rocky outcrop down from the mountains forming two major rivers that joins up and cross over Namibia, a little stretch known as the Zambezi region and then it enters the Kalahari Sand basin of Botswana and then it spread out in a form of a, a, a swamp area with a couple of major streams that carries the water a distance of about 300 kilometers into the sand and it spread out to form a delta of about 15 to 18,000 square kilometers in size. It is actually an iconic place, uh, looking into the fact that it's a unique delta on its own, does not take water from the sea, neither it, it doesn't empty its water into the sea like the well-known deltas of the other part of the world. So as a result of this, the delta does sustain and, 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 and benefit quite a lot of life. Uh, within and its its core, we're looking at uh, the beautiful vegetation that get transformed to form beautiful islands that will be uh, signifying the, the pieces of lands that are magnificent within the delta. And into those islands, we get to see 
the, the beautiful wildlife uh, and also as many as we ex like enjoy the birding and also the the fact that we are able to explore the waterways and, and get to see all these beautiful places. The Okavango Delta in 2014 was then adopted as the number 1000 uh, World Heritage Site, uh, making it an iconic place because of the number of birds that it hosts and the fact that it's a true wilderness area undisturbed without too much human uh, interference. Uh, it, it actually attracts a lot of people for those reasons and of course it, it like I said it hosts a huge number of wildlife that the entire world wants to come and see in its true wilderness area. I grew up in the Okavango Delta, had a beautiful time of, of my young age exploring this, uh, this magnificent place from one place to the other with my uncle and my parents as our lifestyle from, from that time was still fully dependent on hunting and gathering. Uh, so then this opened up my eyes into nature that I enjoyed going in between. I enjoyed being with the animals and as, as safari ex industry was growing at the time, I was also inspired by my uncle who became a guide and I kept visiting him to see how he's doing. And a lot of, a lot of this good stuff that I know now, I learned through that. Um, but at, at, at what point, if you may want to ask, at what point did you, your, 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 I mean, uh, did your interest you know, became so strong that you wanted to work in the, in, in, in uh, the safari industry or in fact the tourism industry at a young age of school and all of that and to see your uncle do that? What actually ticked your interest the most? Uh, I would I would say at the beginning of my life, especially at high school, when I started thinking about these things and I see some beautiful stuff. As a young man, I was actually interested to join the army. Uh, something that didn't go well is that I was enrolled in the program, but at the time it was that year when we had some uh, conflicts or misunderstanding with our neighbor country in Namibia. So I was quite young that most of the decisions were like authorized by parents. So my mother didn't feel like uh, it's, a, it's a good decision to go at that time. So then I considered um, an accounting job. So I was, I was sponsored by a community-based natural resources program that was uh, just starting at the village where I grew up. And then that accounting job uh, came about and I did it for at least two years. During that two years, another scholarship came up again for a guiding position or rather a guiding college. So I, I, I managed to pick that up as well. And I went for my guiding uh, school. So at the guiding school, it took us about 18 months and then I came to do my internship uh, with and beyond. But my accounting was with a different company called Wilderness. Okay. And then I came to do my first 
guiding experience with and beyond in the year 2000 and that that's how my journey started yeah my journey started and beyond within beyond yeah so i mean uh, it means that when you left the tables of accounting all of that to pursue uh, further studies further in, studies in, into uh, yeah in uh, you know, conservation and yeah uh, you know, sustainability and all of that you came back to, to now begin the journey at, at, you know and beyond yes okay uh it, it it's quite interesting Did you come straight into the operation side or you still have to you know be managing things from uh, the accounting side of things as, as, as I came to and beyond, first I was enrolled in an internship program and then that internship actually took three months as they put me into some form of development to do with conservation, to do with uh, professional conduct, with how to handle international guests, stuff like that, which we basically did at school theoretically, but then this was practical. So they were quite happy with how I progress. So the accounting stuff then did not come on my way again after that. Uh, yes, it was a knowledge that uh, every now and then I would, I would help up where they need my help. But my biggest focus was within uh, being a naturalist, a naturalist, a conservation, and also an interpreter of this beautiful wildlife uh, environment. Yeah. And and then now you're an beyond. Already we are talking about 15, 12, 14, whatever years that you are in now. Yeah. What what what's been your experience? Because now now you come in the full operational side of things, and this is where your heart belongs. At least from what you're telling me now. So, uh, I mean, what were your higher points, or if you want to say or again, what were your low points regarding that and the animals, how they reacted and your perception of them at the time and reality with it you know with them take us through the world uh, I would say it's, it's a great it's a great experience that I actually had when I started in the field of guiding because at the beginning as an amateur I was so fascinated with uh, all animals having to know what why they do this why this and that because now I could see it practically and I look at them they appear differently from how I used to see them when and, I was and, a, and, and, you know, and as a young boy myth around it so yes yeah, some of the animals I knew very well that yeah. if you do this this is what's exactly. gonna happen <laughs> and and all of that uh, came came to picture that okay maybe superstitions and those kind of stories I got from my uncle and my grandfather they were basically to format me in, in line with how I should conduct myself with these wild animals. So it worked out that then uh, I, I paid a lot of respect to this animal and to even realize that they are not as dangerous as I always thought. Uh, they are actually potentially dangerous. That is, should you understand their behavior, you get to know how far you can be and where you're supposed to be. This actually uh, helps that then we live within the same ecosystem without trouble from one another. So it was a great experience to study the, the biology and, and, and uh, the, the day-to-day -day life of every species to be able to interpret that if they do this, this is what it means and, and so on. Otherwise, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of transformation in many, in many places, many areas. I tell you, in those years, early 2000 when we started guiding I would say there was so much of a change on a year to year 
in relation to the volume of the floods and the movement of the animals and technology as well. Yeah, technology came in. Yeah, you know, travel as well. you <laughs> want to get, means get of travel, with of it, course, with the, with the animals. But the, you know, it, to, to a certain yeah. point that you cannot go beyond or disturb exactly. the ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's very true. At that time, you see, the mode of transport was not as as efficient it was very, as efficient as now to, yeah, yeah you know, so exactly. it took us time to get to other parts of the of the area other part of the corner of the country but as as of now there's a lot of things that help us to again now if you sit back and reflect on those years and now mm. uh, what are the greatest uh, you, you know wins that we've made and again what are the challenges that we need to 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 be uh, you know to confront it well in able to sustain this Amazing, not mm. just mm. Uh, the wildlife or the iconic delta, mm. but uh, you know, which ultimately can also sustain the uh, environment, the economic activity of this uh, one. I would say uh, the government on the other side has or the flip side of the story. They they had they had a lot to to do in terms of trying to. Uh, spread the awareness on how best we can conserve the animals. I remember in those years uh, the project of community-based natural resources management programs, which were centered to empower every small community living adjacent to a wildlife management area. The, the, the initiative of uh, conservation and trying to help them understand the values of the animal was not an easy exercise that uh, they, they, they had to facilitate through a PAC, which is uh, an, a, like a, a committee formed from the government side that goes around and try and help the people to understand the knowledge about the, the, the animals and the people and also dealing with the conflicts between animals and people. And they responded to that was to establish this community-based natural resources program, which uh, demarcated a specific amount of land that is actually signed up for that particular village. And they are encouraging many methods of conservation to either in- incorporate a joint venture partnership with a safari operator that comes in and then open up some business within that area, then create employment and, and just pay for the people's time, including those that were known to be uh, the poachers at the time. So it, to me, it worked out that I've seen this thing happening from start until until I see the results, because a lot of people who then got employed there, they their life changed, and you see now they are able to help their families, and then this is how people slightly deviated from the uh, the hunting and gathering lifestyle into sort of like a cons- conservation. Um, kind of utilization so sustainable sustainable utilization of natural resources started from that point when when a lot of people's time was 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 taken by the fact that now they are employed and uh, it was less and less of that conflict they have with the animals and it was it was much more that their life improved that they they don't have to depend on the natural resources, particularly the berries and the fruits, which does not come up in, in other years. And, and, and I mean, this actually helped. To me, if I think about those years before this initiative was established, 
I could see that if there was nothing like that that took place, uh, the delta or the wilderness area must have lost many of its values now and also many people would have suffered species as well yes and a lot of people would have been like their life would have been a terrible thing to 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 study uh, yeah. a funny uh, situation right now not only uh, in Botswana but in the most parts where you have uh, in the wildlife uh, uh, strong in in their economies we're talking about human wildlife conflict Okay, we've, we've, we've seen uh, different methods, procedures, uh, you know, regulatory frameworks used in addressing that. From what you said, uh, do you think that we've, you, you've effectively at uh, Botswana dealt with that uh, situation? I wouldn't hesitate to say yes, because now we see even companies or other countries in our neighborhood, they are coming into Botswana to try and benchmark, see how, how did we improve in our conservation and sustainable utilization of natural resources, what are the measures in place and what what more are we doing? So basically, as soon as people were, 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 were empowered in that way, so the the monitoring of, of stuff like poaching and, and illegal activities was, was reinforced by the fact that then there's several anti-poaching units from, from different law enforcement areas then that, that that actually managed to contain a lot of it that then everybody else didn't have time didn't have a chance didn't, there was no opportunity for such and then these countries are coming to benchmark from us it's an example that uh, we we actually did well we did well that we managed to to secure part of our our principles which is conservation if I take you a little bit back, you'll see you'll also realize that the country has been divided accordingly uh, to to allow animals a free area in places where there was no human settlements or no human activity. If you take, for instance, 13% of the country, which is ma- mainly the northern part of Botswana, where there are river system and and also fertile land where these animals used to to live from all these years. It's been secured, the Delta being a heritage site, the Linyanti and Chobe also being part of the, the national parks. And uh, those areas where animals live in concentration are all protected uh, to, to limit the, the excess that people and activities are taking place there and also be monitored uh, to an extent that they, they, there will be no no such of uh, illegal activities that may take place. That actually contributed enough to these animals as area that uh, we don't we don't we don't even fence areas as a result of that. Besides the subdivision of wildlife and livestock, uh, that fence, which I believe you know by now, is not so much efficient because it, every now and then it goes through into the delta and it's nobody can be able to maintain it. So I would say animals have got a free movement in the northern part of Botswana, not restricted to small fences and stuff. So this alone has made the Botswana's northern part be the most attractive uh, safari destination in, in, in Africa, if I may say. Now, for someone who's in back home in the office, uh, in any part of the world, uh, give a picture of what it means to be uh, in the Delta 
not just a safari, which other activity would you say that makes the Delta a unique place and its iconic, you know, status still marked in, in, you know, in the echelons of uh, UNESCO and other uh, you know, conservation uh, bodies? Well, uh, like you mentioned, the the fact that the water spread out and make a lot of channels, a lot, a lot of tributaries that that cut and connect the the area and, and form islands and makes it so much beautiful. It's it's a it's a great place to even explore on a boat cruise. Uh, putting a boat in the water helps you to see all these beautiful sacred places uh, with with a lot of birds. Uh, it, it hosts a good number of water birds or darting birds. Although they are common in all other areas, but the numbers within the delta of these birds tells it all that the, the delta uh, has so much food to offer to these birds. And we see a lot of heronry. Heronry will be an area where all these birds come to nest and gather around. And there are several of those within the delta. And you can only reach to these places by the means of a boat cruise. It's quite unique to even know that the dugout canoe, the ones we're sitting next to here, uh, originally they they evolved within the delta. A tribe called Bayei came up with this idea. And they were carving this from some other massive tree species in the delta and this was the only method at the beginning you could cross over the delta from one place to the other before the engine boat was was brought in and 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 coming in to experience this and having to explore the waterways in that silent mode and tranquil and having to hear only the the, the, the birds and frogs and hippos and fish eagle that we hear from a distance this alone has became something special that people think about it on how these inhabitants have managed to survive within this kind of environment which seems to be difficult for for one to be able to pursue and they lived and survived from aquatic uh, food sources and this was how they would be able to uh, take their families from one point to the other by the means of Mukoro. And uh, yeah, so it's it's quite it's quite a special place, uh, even considering the fact that some people would come here for for specific activities like maybe fishing, uh, which the delta itself hosting up to like 71 species of fish. It makes it so much special that it's quite a variety, and these fishes spread out in depending on. Uh, whether shallow water or deep water and there are some of those that attracts the outside world to come and do those kind of activities. Some people even come to the Delta to exploit on foot. It's remarkably special if you, you come down to... Mark on a you know, foot expedition. Yes, on a, on a, on a walking tours and, and, and have nature at its best to be able to see things that many people don't get a chance to see because when you're driving you tend to pass a lot of details but when you're walking you are down on earth and you're able to see all those uh, bushcraft skills stuff and and animal signs that you see a lot of little flowers and how nature connects on its own to sustain the ecosystem uh, it's a lot of activities that one could think of coming to the Delta 
uh, which the most common one, of course, would be the gen drive. But there are these other special ones that, um, depending on where you are within the delta, you can you can have you can have a remarkable experience among these activities. Yes. Finally, uh, as we all you know, I mean, there's a talk of climate change, hmm. what we are doing to make our world better. Yeah. From a conservationist point of view, and from what you're doing, what will be your your your, your last words to, to, to the world, I mean, to the tourism world, and what we can do to make the world better? Good. And beyond, the company I work for has has a mission of uh, uh, striving to leave the world in a better place than we found it uh, by this extraordinary uh, guest experience in Africa, Asia, and South America. This alone has opened up my eyes to realize how much pollution we are contributing to the ecosystem by the use of these engine machines which we have uh, producing power and then and, and cruising through the water, things like that. So there's some of our initiatives which are very much beneficial to the environment is that our lodges now operate in solar panels, still have the generator as a backup but only runs one or two hours in a day. Then we minimize the use of our uh, uh, lubricants, the boat that we are using, they are fuel sufficient that they, they they would have no leaks of any form. It's a new design, it's sealed up and it's just doesn't spill any oil, any any lubricant in the water. So we have eliminated the use of plastic in the company and we have even another initiative that we pick the flip-flops that people are throwing in the sea where we operate and we secured at least two kilometers seashore that we, we monitor to show the part of the world that this is possible. Look at this, how clean, how healthy the environment is. Otherwise, before all these things happen, I tell you, I've seen it that um, some changes that we experience is even the volume of the water in the delta. This global warming is actually real that I tell you in 20, 2009, this time of the year, the water was up to like here. And uh, during the floods, the water was underneath that building. And you can imagine for the water to be underneath that building, that means this thing here, it's full. So we it, slowly, slowly, we're not getting that amount of floods. Yeah, we don't see that. And our rainfall, it's a typical example. We used to get our rain starting from September, just before independence, and it rains all the way until around March. But now our rains comes, if not November, it's December. And sometimes not even much rain. And then many days of dry heat, and it dries out the delta, and it's much more hotter than before. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of pollution. Is the sunset right now? You will see it tends to be red. The entire horizon. Some of these things were not like this even when I was growing when I was young. So, indeed, Africa. They always say it's a dusty continent because of the Kalahari sand and some other deserts, which then the sand and the dust is all going up. But of course it might have that kind of effect, but to me, all in all, it's the machineries and uh, the, the industries that are being in use, which contribute to this global warming one way or the other. Yeah. Bruce, thank you so much uh, for your 
depth of knowledge about the Delta, and that's, uh, you know, for you know for sharing with our listeners what is it that and 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 what it means to be here in the Delta, uh, the Okavango uh, Delta region. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. Thanks a lot. Thanks for giving me this opportunity as well to share with you the little I know. <laughs>